0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Media Mates Podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week, I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is technology expert Trevor Long. Trevor has recently left the media after 20 years in various roles at 2GB, 2UE and SBS. We chat about how he began his media career as a talkback caller, working with Ray Hadley, learning how to become a better manager and building his own brand. I first worked with Trevor about 20 years ago, so we do a lot of reminiscing and I really enjoyed our chat, so I hope you do too. Trevor Long. The Media Mates Podcast. Great to be here in my own office.
1: We are in your office. Yeah. The EFTM studio. It's now what you do. It is what I do. This is my I literally work from home. It's uh it's awesome. How did that come about? I quit my job. Radical move. Um, you know, over the over the course of the last couple of years I've I've been doing more and more work outside of what was my day job. And um I figured if I'm gonna do it, I've got to give it a whirl, you know. Um it's one of those things that I think even my wife used to say, you know, you've you got to pick what you're going to do or you've got to put all into it. So i have just taken a punt. If it doesn't work, I'll go back to being a full-time employee somewhere, but got to give it a whirl in time.
0: And that job was SBS previously?
1: Yeah, manager of technology, strategy, and innovation was my, my last title
0: at SBS. Big yeah. business card.
1: Yeah, which that's what happens when you make your own title. I've done that twice in my career, and um, they're always good. They're always good, big ones when you make your own title. Um, but, you know, I've been at SBS for seven and a half years, nearly eight years. So um, yeah, it was time to i I'd done done everything I needed to do there. Didn't have any you know hatred for the joint. I just mate, i had done my time. Seven and a half years is a long time in the, these days. It is in any career, I think so.
0: Gone are the days of the gold watch. After twenty five, thirty, forty years yeah. that happened back in when I guess when our parents were sort of um, going through their um, careers or our grandparents probably
1: even long service leave these days is a hard thing to get. Ten years is a bloody long time. My wife said to me, she "Said shouldn't you hang around?" I'm like another two and a half years just to get what six weeks leave. No, nah. no. Nah. But there's
0: enough to keep you busy. You've.
1: It uh, seems like, <laughs> seem,
0: seem, seem like you're everywhere, like in terms of, okay, well, the, the things that kept you going through your SBS period were yep. uh, appearances on Channel 9 uh, and 2UE and, hmm. and different uh, places across what you do. So it's just, I guess, expanding that into other areas as well.
1: Yeah, I think what I what I realized was I pretty much make as much money as I can make out of being in the media. I don't know that cuz most of the stuff I do doesn't get paid I don't get paid for it it's just a, it's a it's a profile thing most of it um but I what I what I have learned over 20 years being in the media whether it's as a program director or as a nufty behind the scenes or a producer or business manager is a lot about the media and how it works and then the last few years getting stories from you know inception to a to a TV story or for a radio or whatever i've learned a lot about how the media works and how pitching works so I, i'm now able to provide a bit of value to pr companies and brands about their strategy you know and that so it's really all the stuff i'm going to be doing over the next 12 to 24 months is behind the scenes you might see me more because I've got more time I can say yes to more media appearances now because yep. I don't have a day job um, today extra is a good example of that I'm probably on there um, you know t- sometimes twice a week just because I used to be able to s- I used to have to say no because I was at work you know I work from nine to five or Broadly, you know those hours, so I can't just be appearing on TV during those hours. So, I'm I'm probably around more because I'm uh, able to. But behind the scenes, it's it's corporate speaking, PR advisory, and then you know building my own web properties and stuff uh, through advertising.
0: How important was it for you that SBS allowed you to do those extra things like the radio and the TV, which then in turn allowed you to build your own brand and become. Mm. Trevor Long, the tech expert that everybody goes to?
1: I couldn't have done it without their support, without question, Um, and it started with a guy called Dirk Anthony. He, uh, When I first moved to SBS in 2008, um, the the director of radio at the time, you know, was just the director of radio, not really an inspirational media personality or anything. she left and uh, and we had this period where we were waiting to see who was going to take over and this guy called Dirk Anthony came from the UK. He'd been at GCAP and all these big radio stations, a real content guy but also a real uh, manager but not a strict manager, a people manager, a very good people manager. And, mate, our first one-to-one and, and, you know, you and I have worked at the same places roughly. You don't have one-to-one meetings with your bosses. No. So just having one-to-ones was a fresh thing for me. But we sat down and he goes, so where do you want to be in five years? And I went, what? shouldn't we talk about the things I'm working on here? No, we're talking about where I'm going to be in five years. So we started talking about, you know, radio, and I just started doing again the tech show on 2GB at the time. So he was interested in that. And he started listening to my show. We started basically having air checks as Rough. my one-on-ones <laughs> because he knew that I was getting the job done, and we we talked about what needed to be done at work. But yeah. he was he was trying to create a – a great relationship he was trying to build me as an individual, which made I think it did it helped me as a person and as a manager at SBS um, because I started to focus more on the people and people who've worked with me in other organizations probably don't th- think of me as a people person because um, that's not the job I had uh, at 2Gb for example I didn't really have a great reputation as being a people person because that was not my job um, so yeah dirk Dirk really supported me he to the point where he encouraged me to have weekly coffee meetings with you know, PR companies or brands, because I wasn't having that time and I wasn't having that exposure. So I did. I created that time where I did those things, and then basically it just it just exploded to a point where I was doing whatever I could outside of work hours. So pretty much every morning I'd be up at six and I'd go and do whether it was a TV spot or my radio spots. I've got plenty of radio spots across the country, and most of them are in breakfast time or drive time because yeah. that was the outside of the hours that I that I would be working. So. He encouraged me to do that. They supported me to do that, and it worked well for them in some periods. You know, there was a period where um, what was it analog switched off, and digital was switching on, um, but it was causing you know great heartache for the especially for the elderly of in course. Australia. Yeah, yeah. And I was having this conversation with with the MD Michael B at SBS, and we had we had a problem where in Melbourne the ratings went down because people didn't know how know to find SBS. It. Yeah. So I went and basically just hit the phones and we just did our own publicity campaign across radio and, and stuff around the country. So I, I did that for them as well. So it kind of worked well in, in a broad sense. And they were very supportive over the time because in the end, I still did everything I needed to do at work and I worked my ring off. I worked long hours, hard hours and, you know, I never, never slacked off a bit. And every time I'd travel overseas or whatever it was, that was annual leave. You know, I haven't had a holiday with my family in a long time because. 4 weeks a year. Yeah. You know, you go to an Apple event in San Francisco, that's 4 days annual leave. You go to CES in January, that's 5 days annual leave. All my annual leave was taken up going to tech events, so,
0: you know, positioning yourself. Did you ever see that or was that what uh that that chat with your um your superior led you down that path where you thought, "Hang on a minute, I could actually become a tech person mm. or the, the the go-to guy for tech. Yeah. There's 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 a few guys out there that are doing that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, Is that kind of was in in the back of your mind? You just didn't know how to do it or...?
1: No, you know what? I never thought about it. I just, when I left 2GB uh, and went to SBS, I, I stopped doing my radio show like cold turkey because I just had to leave 2GB. I needed to leave. I didn't want to have this kind of hanging around and I missed it. Look, anyone that is... You know, you know, in the blood, a radio person or a media person, you miss it when you're not doing it. Yep. And there's the great thing about being on air. You miss being on air. So I missed it. So I went back to doing that and you know, I loved it. I just love doing the stuff that I do, especially the talk back. It's great fun. And then there was just a period where I realized that, and especially with social media played a part as well. You had this thing where you kind of needed to create a profile for yourself. And I think it just happened organically where you cause could, could you appear on enough, you do enough things and the current affairs. Been the longest running thing. I've done that for six years now, mate. People, the phone just rings. People, people look at you and go, "Well, we'll get him," um, because he did that story last night. So, and then you go to an Apple event, and I do something like 28, 30 radio interviews at an Apple event because everyone wants to talk about it. Yeah. And there's a bloke in Bunbury, Western Australia, called Cliff. He, he works on like Radio West, all all across Western Australia. And mate, if I hadn't have done an Apple event where he needed someone to talk to him, he wouldn't. We would never have met. He wouldn't have got my number. But now he'll call me whenever there's a whenever there's a thing on because he knows he can ring me. I'll I'll have a chat. I'm easy. It's not 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 hard for him, and I um, will make life easy for people. So it just kind of organically grew, and then I realised that you know what, I have created a bit of a profile for myself in yep. that in that niche space. So embrace it and run with it. So yeah, that's exactly what I've done. Let's go back
0: to mm. where it all started. Was media something that always fascinated you as a as a kid? I mean, obviously you've got the technical side to what you do, which mm. is an interest in you know technology and, and websites and all of that kind of stuff, but it was through the media door that you got the opportunity. Where yeah. where did that interest stem from?
1: Um, I don't remember as a kid having an interest in media much. I remember at some point, um, I guess after leaving school, I applied to go to AFTIS and got rejected because mm. I didn't have any experience, and I just thought to myself, isn't that ridiculous? Well, I Aren't don't have experience. No, you? <laughs> you meant to teach me. But they wanted people who'd done community radio. Right. And I was kind of, I guess, a bit angry about that. I, I don't remember it vividly, but I remember that kind of situation. Um, so I didn't really give it a second thought. But, mate, my, my, I started in media very simply as a talkback caller. I used to ring David Tapp on Straight Talk, on 2KY, 101.7 Sport and Talk, every Sunday night, mate. Goodness every Sunday me. night. he talked about motorsport for two hours. I was a 15-year-old. Who absolutely loved motorsport, and I'd ring up and talk about Tony Longhurst changing his tyres or whatever the hell it was.
0: Where did that love of motorsport come from?
1: Um, I think it's in my in my genes. My dad was massive into cars, so I think just you know Bathurst was always a big thing in my family. So yeah, we just just loved. Motorsport. I'm not, and I'm not exactly an athletic type, so I never really got into actual sport. <laughs> <laughs> so I think motorsport was the easy one just to enjoy watching. And, yeah, I just, I've always loved motorsport. So, yeah, listening to Tappy and that idea of, you know, ringing up and saying what I thought about something as a 15-year-old Yeah. Um, uh, to the point where, you know, he coined a nickname for me because I'd just be on every week. And so I just got to, new- got to know Tappy um, through that. I was like I was faxing him from school. Like I, there's a I've still got the piece because I was tweeting about it um, a couple of weeks ago with Michael Idato. Michael Idato, who was then at the Telegraph. I think he's now at the Herald, yep. based overseas. Wrote a thing in the tune in tune out of the Daily Telegraph saying, you know, the Grand Prix's on. Well, this is just another chance to watch people go round and round, wasting petrol or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I've highlighted it and I've faxed it to Tappy at Two KY, and oh, it's just ridiculous, <laughs> you know. But that's what fifteen-year-olds do. And that was a the old trap, the ultimate radio fanboy. Yeah, I've got man, I've got letters. I, I used to, I wrote to Fred Gibson, who owned or ran Nissan Motorsport, um, about the fact that the cars look stupid because they have black wheels. And he wrote back and, and said, you, you'll be surprised to see the wheels next race. And they were white. I mean, it's just stupid wow. the things that I did as a kid. But, but you know, ringing, I, that was cool fun, you know, ring a radio station. I used to love listening. That was where I learned that there was such a thing as a pre record because once I'd been doing it for a while, I realized that he never did talk back in the second hour. After on some shows, he's probably on his way home because he's on his way home to do a like a function or something at the harness races or whatever. <laughs> um, and and you know, I just got to know him really well, Tappy. And uh, what did I do? I just started, he he then moved to, to GB and I just started coming in and helping him and Clint Wilden on whatever the hell sports show Tappy was doing on on 2GB. And it that just led from there because I just did, you know, I was, I was pretty much joined at the hip with Tappy for. Uh, probably four years uh, in the in the mid to late 90s, just uh, working on a whole bunch of different projects.
0: And then where did that technology part of it come into? Because we go back as far as then. Mm. Uh, I was trying to work out when I actually first met before coming into this, but it's got to be it's 20 definitely years. definitely
1: late 90s because yeah. I, I left for Perth in ni- end of 98. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so it was 90, 90, 96, 97 when I – I think 90, 97 I, I built 2 yeah, the very first 2GB website and we had one computer set up, and we actually built a mail, uh, an email program so that staff could have email, just one computer, and there was no Gmail or Hotmail back no. then. Um, and so, yeah, it would be yeah late late 90s, mid to late 90s.
0: So where did that sort of crossover come between, okay, the love of motorsport to joining the dots too? Because from, from my memories, you've always been – the, the tech, nerd. The tech guy. The, You're allowed to you, say it. It's okay. <laughs> the geek, the nerd, the, the guy that knew stuff about yeah, yeah. stuff that nobody else knew about.
1: That was just – I was just always a tinkerer. I just always had computers and, you know, silly little – I've still got my, my contact, my electronic contact diary, which I kept all my contacts oh, in Oh, yes, I then. remember that thing. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean that's the nerdiest thing ever. You know, every, <laughs> here's everyone else with a notebook and their contact numbers oh, and I had a Casio, oh, you know, yes. little, little thing. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I wasn't a, I was a full time employee because I was producing the world of football with Andrew Moore. Yeah. Um, but you know, I was never the kind of person that sat still. So, you know, I was, I had a website about motorsport. I was just doing websites. I was just building websites as people did back then, right? Yeah. Um, and Can, so that's Candela. Candela, that's it. God, you used to yeah. run the inter office footy tipping that's competitions, all, which uh, you know, and and footy We we eventually sold to Macquarie Radio. Wow, Yeah, because uh, we'll, we'll get to Angela Clark in a while, but that was, yeah, that was, that was a big thing for us. But Candela, in fact, um, I came up with that name because in Italy, when we were in Italy years ago, Candela is Sparkplug in Italian, and that was my nickname. David Tap called me Sparkplug Trev. Right. That was my name. That's what he'd call me on the radio. So okay. that became Candela and, and went on from there. But, you know, so I was always working on computers. I was building websites. And so that's why I built the 2GB website. You know, we got live streaming happening. We were doing on demand news. You know, we'd record the news every hour and it'd be available on the website. It was full on stuff for 1998. It was. Yeah. Um, and, and so, because, so, so, I, the radio stuff was awesome. I loved it. But then, I moved to Perth with a girlfriend at the time and just and that's all I did then was websites because I wasn't in the media okay, at all for, yep. two, for two and a half years. Was while that we're a over there.
0: conscious decision to not pursue a media career while you were in Perth or were you sort of had enough, you sort of saw more mileage in um, the website
1: I think, t- side of things? I, I'm trying to remember, to be honest. But it's such a crap memory. But I think in the end, I was making money off the websites. Yeah. Um, you know, 2GB, I was still earning money. from. So I, I earned money from 2GB from 1995 through to – God, two thousand and whenever I left there, two thousand and eight. In some way, shape or form, every month. So I was earning money from Two G B to run the website from Perth. I was running the website, you know, had to do all the changes every time they changed presenters every six months or a year. Um, and <laughs> so, so it was regular work. You know, but it was my thing. I'd redesign the website. It was yeah. it was entirely my thing. And then, you know, Candela did pretty well in, in, in the late nineties. We we had some big clients building pretty pretty big websites. Um but, yeah, it was just, yeah, I didn't, need, I didn't need media work. But, again, you have that thing where you miss it. But I was, I was lucky enough to still be involved. So, you know, great mates with the Andrew. And we, we, we just had, I had so many connections still, and I was still so embedded at GB because I was the one doing the website. Yeah, if, you got to remember back then if they wanted to put words on the site, they had to ring me and I'd have to type it in. Um, yeah. you know, this is not a time when there was back ends and producers were typing stuff on the website. So
0: no, I was the only one doing it. You mentioned there your interest in motorsport but you're also involved in regular sports programs, but mm. you always said that you weren't a full-on sports no. guy, which was like, was you know, strange. it wasn't, su- it wasn't su- surprising. you go, well, I don't know nothing about that. You tell me about that. Like you talk well, to me I remember, or
1: whatever. I remember pretty clearly um, probably three or four years into producing the continuous call team. You know, you've got a very cool group of people there, Hadley and Chippy and uh, um, Bozo and Blocker. And I remember we we became very close, especially Bozo, Bowen and I. We'd go out to Bozo's farm in Quambo. And I remember one time we are on the drink or something out there and Bozo says something like, you know, named a player. And I went, mate, who's that? I don't have a media guide with me. I've got no idea. And he goes, what do you mean you don't know? I said, Bozo, I don't like football. I have no interest in the game. I support Parramatta, I think because my mum did. I don't know. Right. But I have no interest in the game at all. And he just, mate, the look on his face, if that had been in the first two months of my time with them, I'd have been out of my ass. You'd have been. What, what the, the, the hell flake. have we got this bloke here for? But, you know, he'd realised that it wasn't about the football. Especially that show. It no. was not about football. It was about entertainment. And going back to even Tappy's show and then Andrew's world of football, it wasn't about football. It was about what's the best story of the day? Who have we got to get? And it was about the chase. That's the oh, best the chase. thing about producing. How good's the chase? Is the chase. Oh, mate. Susie Maroney swimming, you know, between Cuba and Florida and getting them, getting someone on a, on a mobile phone on a boat in 1997 was a chase. That was awesome.
0: It's, it's hard to explain that to people pre-internet days, pre-Google, pre, oh. pre-all of that kind of gear is using your now or using whatever it was to find a contact in a phone book, ring that person yeah. who would send you to another person who would send you to another person. It's hard to explain to producers these days what that was like and somebody working behind the scenes, the thrill – of that coming off, landing that interview that went seamlessly, that took 48 phone calls and, yeah. you know, a bit of abuse from someone here or, or, or something to eventually get that to air and then it's over in about four minutes.
1: Yeah, there's two parts about it. The chase was just is phenomenal in radio. It doesn't matter whether it's general talk or sport, getting that big interview is, is awesome. Um, then there's the the simplicity sometimes, in you know, the relationship we formed. You know, David Gallup was just such – David Gallup and Graham Annesley, unbelievable when they were at the NRL. And that was my core time, you know, producing the continuous call team. But, you know, Gallo and Anno, you could just ring them and they'd come on. And there wasn't any bullying about. It was just, mate, we're going to do this. We have to talk about it. You're going to come on. And like, be, if, if they are in a family situation or something, we'd call back or whatever. Yeah. But there was never a media person in between you and all that kind of stuff, which as I understand it, and that's why I wouldn't want to produce today – it's just a nightmare. It's just a big barrier put in front of everything. Back in my day, God, I'm sounding old, um, yeah. it, was, it was good to just pick up the phone, ring someone at home and say, mate, can we grab you for an interview? And they'd say yes, no. And they knew who you were. These people, I, I mate, for 15 years, I never left the radio station. Yeah. I meet people today and they go, oh, did we used to like talk on the radio or talk on the phone? And I'm like, yeah, but we never met. I've I got everyone's numbers. never met them in my life. Yes, yeah, that just was what the, the,
0: the strange thing, and like you say, I mean, if it was a footballer, for argument's sake, you were chasing, and this even on the news and in program, you'd call the coach, yeah, and ring the coach direct on his home number mm. and say, "Mate, I'm looking for the second rower. Have you? Can you give me his number? Oh, yeah, he's at
1: his mum's place. Yeah. ring it <laughs> on the ring, on Bob. The, to oh, turn yeah. a second, I like get Shane uh, Hill's number. Uh, you know. <laughs> it, it was, you know, but that there, there was it was a. That late 90s was probably, it was early days, but it was also just awesome. You know, Rusty was there, um, you were there, Andrew. We had a... It was a good bunch of people. It was a fun time. We had the Kingdome. I've got tapes of me doing live. I don't know why the hell I was on the air, but I was doing live crosses from the Kingdome because we were doing around the grounds from every sport under the sun. It was just great fun, you know, and it was. Oh, that was
0: the thing. Is like 2GB back then, that was the, you know, the poor little brother because 2UE was the, the, the number one station at that stage and was just carving up. We had so a ratings party when we went to 3.8. Oh, those were the days. <laughs> it's just like you think about it back then and, you know, Like you said, we had so much fun because we were always the underdog. But at the same time, we still produced and provided some really good radio content, even though it it was considered to be the second-class citizen. But also... It was about the competition you'd mm. listen to the other more well they didn't get them or you know yeah. that, 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 that sort of tuning the the, the the radio up in the background to see who got
1: the interview at ten past twelve because you knew you were both Ralph, going for don 't forget to keep the weather on because they, they broadcast the weather over a speaker <laughs> every every hour and you, you couldn't just go to the website to get the weather Do you know it was it was I, I really enjoyed that time at GB um, because it was, it felt like a fight. I, you know, in in hindsight, we weren't really fighting for for, for a victory there, but no. we 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 at least tried bloody hard to make good radio, and I think we did. I think we made great radio. You know, Salvo, remember Craig Salvatore and Andrew doing the football was just it was great radio, Mario and we had heaps of people. It was it was a really good time. And I oh, look I learned so much. You know, you'd come off the back and um, John Pierce would be there and, you know, doing his show on Ask the Oracle and then Darren Hinch is around and Graham Richardson on Breakfast. Uh, I mean the kind of people that, that that we interacted with back then was it's phenomenal to think about now. It Really is. It's phenomenal. In that old building, which had so much history, and 368 Sussex, it was. It was a really
0: great place to yeah. learn about media and learn about radio. I think. No. Who, who, who would you say that would have been? Your mentors there. You would have mentioned a couple there already. Well originally there's
1: you. no doubt originally Tappy was, was the was the, the key inspiration for getting involved. Andrew Andrew Moore played a massive role in in that drive because he loved Andrew loved the, the chase, the result of the chase as much as we love the yes. chase. And he you know, if you put effort into something, he really like you felt that through his interview, you know. And so he, he embraced the chase. He always mate, Andrew acknowledged everyone. Andrew always acknowledged his producers at the end of a season, at the end of a show. He he always acknowledged people, and he still does to this day. I mm. think um, that that was that was a big deal. Um, probably, look, to be honest, outside of Tappy and, and Andrew, I don't really remember many people from back then. What about know, the technical the
0: side of things? Were there people there that helped you on the way? or Were there people, like, standing in the way that be like, oh, website, what the hell's that? Like, yeah, uh, I
1: pretty much did. my. So, uh, look, look, George Bushman was the CEO, and Marin Vincent, was she there at the time? No, I don't think she later? was quite there yet. Yeah. George Bushman was definitely the, the, the boss, though. I had a great relationship with George, and I don't know why, but I've always had a great relationship with the kind of the boss, At most places I work because I'm pretty honest. I'm just frank Mm. and I'm happy to walk in and just talk to them as well. I think a lot of people are scared to do that with often CEOs and stuff. But George... It wasn't a lot of money they were spending on getting websites done, and you know I was doing deals with real networks to get real player working on uh, real that player, exists, You know, yes, you know we had real networks bring in the boxes oh, to make streaming work. We wow. we were doing deals to put in the links to ensure that we had the bandwidth to send out internet streams from the building, not not to servers. If if there was a hundred people listening, they were all listening via the computer in the building. It's all distributed these days. So it's very very different, but. No, George was excellent. He embraced all that stuff. Martin Quiggan and, and co, from a technical point of view, we're just making radio, right? Yes. So they didn't need they didn't it departments didn't exist back then. They no. were they were uh, administering radio studios and AAP basis terminals. Yeah, that they were the computers. They didn't have the internet on, them. so that's why I just went and we just got a computer. We got an internet connection. We just it was all done separately. Um, so no, we, we had great support. George was again George is one of those people that a lot of especially a lot of um a lot of lot of senior people had had problems with through whatever it is contract negotiations or whatever but I thought George was awesome he he loved the cool stuff he loved playing with new things he was always supportive of the of the fun things we did and that's what that's what made look two gb dot com way back when was enormous it was easily australia's number one online radio station that was probably the tagline I used yeah I um think you did. it was just it was just good we did so
0: much stuff and then it was funny the fact that the NRL was behind 2GB and thought for a minute and then caught up and said, you guys can't stream games
1: yeah. on the internet? Yeah. It's just like, what are you doing? I remember coming back because I, I was in Perth and I was, I was on a golf course. We used to play golf, whatever. Um, when someone rang me and said, listen, 2GB has just got the exclusive rights to the football. And I was just going, are you kidding me? Like how has this happened for a start? Yes. And that was, that was a tectonic shift in, in rugby league radio but it was also the time when the NRL became, you know, interested in all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so, the conversation about us not streaming, it was like, "Mate, are you kidding? Just turn it up." But these days it's obviously a very different thing, but you know, we were we were we were ahead of the game back then, I think. And um and you know, paved the way in some ways for a lot of cool stuff that happened, but you know, it was it was interesting because that that, that two years up until 2001 when I came back to Sydney was just all tech. And then I came back and became, you know, entirely radio again essentially and, and other than doing the 2GB website, that was what I did.
0: You mentioned a brief foray there into, you know, going to the kingdom and, and doing a few different things on air was never your interest or nope. your go at all, whereas it, no, it was it was kind of mine. I would kind of like sway in between both. So I remember I, you
1: came in as a, as a kind of sports – you came in as one of those people that would help on the sports shows, yep. also help in the newsroom, but you'd done Maclay College, I think. Yeah, yeah I'd done Maclay College. And too. so you had this definite um, drive towards being on air. So that was why you were always going to end up either reading bulletins or updates or something yeah, like that.
0: Yeah, going out to sporting events and doing all those kind of things because that's what I felt I could do. Eventually it was like I thought that I wanted to call football But then I worked out that uh, pretty quickly through doing work experience with Andrew and then um, getting paid gigs at 2GB that while I could do the on-air stuff, I more enjoyed the -the behind-the-scenes stuff. Whereas Mm. you always just never rated yourself. You never thought that you could – you didn't
1: have an interest. Did no, I had no interest. I had no interest at all in being on air. I just loved the behind. I loved producing. I produced pretty much every shift except mid-dawns. I think mm. um, on the radio station. You know, I was producing general news and talk. You know, when when Lady Princess Di died, Threadbow, You know, lots of stuff happened. Big time news. Mike Jeffries, Mike Gibson, those kind of people on the air. We, we, I produced John Harker, Graham Richardson, Clive Robertson, all those guys. It was just good. I loved behind the scenes. You know what? I loved the phones. Yeah, I bloody loved doing the phones. It's great fun talking to people because you're a barrier, right? There's some real nut jobs out there you don't ever want to put to air. And sometimes they're fun to play with. So I love that. (laughs) So that was the thing that
0: you always had, that you just didn't care who they were or where they came from or how old they were or what the story was. You just loved giving it to them back. it it, it, It was... it was at an entertainment package in itself, watching you in full flight. Because the thing is, people don't understand yeah. is when you're producing a show, you're trying to tee up an interview, you're also keeping an eye on the news, and then you're dealing with these whack jobs that want their you know 15 seconds of fame on the on the radio, or to be a nark to ring up and mm. correct something that the on air presenter is wrong. And you just reveled in the fact that okay, I've got 600 things going on through my mind
1: at the moment, but my most direct thing is to abuse you. <laughs> <laughs> look, I had a very simple rule. If you if you say it to me, I can say it to you. So if you call me a prick on the phone, I'm going to call your prick back, and I don't care what the words mm. or the or the or the idiosyncrasies are. You know what? It was it. What? Look, it's it's quite exhausting doing six hours of radio on the phones, let alone mm. three hours. And there are some people out there who just feel self entitled about the world, and they're never going to get on the radio because they're they're no. just terrible talent. The idea at two GB, we call it called vetting. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what the job is. And to the narcs that are listening, that, well, they're not listening to this show because they're, no. they're not the kind of people, but people would ring up or say that, you know, talk back is always completely screened and da-da. The calls aren't screened. They're vetted. Yeah. We're vetting out the nut jobs. We're vetting out people who just can't, compre- can't make a, a comprehensive statement. Yep. If you can't get your question out, if you can't tell me your question in seven words or less, I don't know how you're going to get it out on the radio. No. And and that's turning radios off. That was. I, what are you going to talk about? And then you—that's your window of opportunity. You're Tell selling me. You're subject. pitching to me, people. What? What's? What? What are you going to get here? How are you going to provide value to this program? We are not the ABC. We are not here to provide buy, um, balance and all that kind of thing. We're here to provide entertainment, especially on the football shows, but also on the talk. I mean, I'm sorry if you're boring. Everyone listening is going to think it's boring. They're going to turn off. So it's my job to make sure that we either fire you up. Sometimes it's encouraging people to actually come on the radio. They just want to say, yeah. "Oh, can you just tell him this?" No, 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 no. You tell him. That's awesome. That's a great point you've got there. It's great point. Oh, you'll be next up. You know, it's all good. And that kind of stuff was great fun. That old phone system at GQV. Oh mate, Oh, you know what I've got a copy of here on floppy disk is that phone system. Wow. The software, you know, the single yeah, lines yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and the old press button. Man, that was. That was archaic. And that was the reason I, mm-hmm. I still sit there today in, in behind the scenes in radio stations and, and see, you know, five people on hold and nothing being said. And I say, you've got to check on them. Because back then you go, you're still there, Dorothy. You're yep. still there, Ralph. You're still there, John. You're still there. Just quick like that. Boom, boom, boom. Everyone say, yep, 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 yep. These days, because the phones are so advanced, if you've never been to a radio station, if you hang up at the other end, the call dies. So then they but you can't... always had to go back and check. Yeah, yeah. These days, you don't have to check on them. But. The thing that's lost there is that that engagement of them. So yes. the callers, I believe, you should still engage with them today. You're still there, John, mate. Thanks for holding. We are going to be with you soon. Just so they stay perked and they stay prepped ready to go. But well, so that's the thing, like, lost. you know, for some of them they could have been on there for
0: 25 minutes on oh, yeah. hold, but the idea of the premise of you being the the call phone operator or the call vetter was to keep them there even if they were waiting for 25 that's right. minutes is they had something to say, and if they were, you know, six deep in the queue, well, you're, you you had to keep going. Some of them, they got the shits and they used to ha- to hang up, which is fair enough. I'd it's probably a fine do the note.
1: same. I, I trained many a phone operator, um, and there's not a lot. It's not it's not a really great skill that a lot of people have. There's still some great people that do it today, but a lot of people don't give it the a lot of people don't give it the credibility that it deserves. Which is, your, it's your challenge now to. Not answer everyone's question, but to put them through to the air, and you've really got it's a it's an art, mate. And and I loved I loved summer at Two GB training new phone operators and sitting with them and teaching them a little bit of the the agro, but also just the basic craft of, of call vetting.
0: Oh, it was a great skill to have in order to, like you say, prepare them for what that they were going to say on air. And I agree with you. Now I listened to some of the callers that uh, let through, as it were, it's rubbish. Mm. You know, there's not that teaching of just like, well, if they ring through, they're going to get on it. It's just like, well, actually, there's a real process to actually putting uh, them through.
1: It's a really important thing that a host doesn't feel desperate to have calls up there. I mean, I'm doing six hours on on TUE this weekend of general talk and I've got to be prepared to just have no calls because they might not come and, and I don't want the ones that are just there because they came through. The host has to have that, I don't know, that confidence and the call screener has to have the confidence to say no to someone if they're just not a great caller. Because you've got to think about the fifty, hundred, thousand 100,000 people that are listening at home. It's
0: boring. You said that you went to Perth. That was Mm. for a couple of years and then you...
1: Longest decade of my life. Much, much your way back.
0: (laughs) Why was it the longest decade Uh, of your life?
1: Mate, it's not a period I want to really rehash in my life, to be honest. It was uh, a very uh, short-lived relationship that doesn't need to be rehashed. And you know what? I learned a lot. It was good fun. And you came back and you... How did you get back into it? Um,
0: because I was overseas at
1: that stage so you were back on the scene I'm going to say Andrew Moore yeah you know I kept in touch with Andrew I still came back when I came back to Sydney we'd still catch up I think he was at 2SM for a lot of that period Um, you know we'd catch up for for Chinese or whatever and he was doing um, sports today with Peter Bosley yeah so uh, you know at some point I just tried hard and I ended up being the call screener for, for that show and or producer. Um, so I started producing Sports Today in 2001. You know, two hours a day, it was not a lot of money but it was enough and I was doing a bunch of other things at the time. I, you know, still do a million still things. Doing the websites. Um, I was still doing the 2GB website um, but, yeah, I was doing two hours a day on on Sports Today and that, again, it just – you become a casual, right? So filling shifts here, filling shifts there. You're in um, the door. You're there. No, and- it's just – I've said this to to a girl at Channel 9 the other day who said she said she was an intern. I said, how long's an internship here? She goes, well, hopefully until I get a full-time job. I said, you're in the door. That's the most important thing you've got is you're in the door. Um, You're you're ahead of about 20 or 30 other people that still don't know how to get into the door. That couldn't be asked working for nothing. Um, So, yeah, I was in the door. I was doing the sports show and, yeah, I just ended up doing more and more and more and more things um, to the point where um, Hadley... (coughs) Like, who's even got my landline number? Yeah, like, I know. What's going on? Um, Who knows I we're installed here? a landline here because I'm here now so often. I need to do radio interviews with yeah, a yeah, landline. Yeah. So it's kind of strange. Um, Hadley needed. Um Someone to write sport. I think Damo, uh, Damien Kelly, was writing sports updates for him while he was producing, and they went. I'll just produ- Damo. will produce, and I'll do the sports update. So here I am writing sports updates on the half hour hmm. for the continuous call team, and S- still not knowing anything about sport. Correct, but you know, I can I can get a score. Yes. You remember also the reflecting back on those late '90s days. I've got phone numbers for the scoreboards. The we have to, we have to yes. ring, Remember, I have to ring the scoreboard. Oh, remember doing s- s- Brillo revival, six six, <laughs> six hour sports shows.
0: So you'd have There's to no ring, internet scores, people. You'd have to ring the Gabba, and <laughs> you'd have to ring the Adelaide Oval, and <laughs> the, you know because you know there was a greater emphasis on Shield cricket then because you know your mark wars and your your guys were actually playing in the mm. Sheffield Shield, whereas they don't play many games these days. But you're right, I'd forgotten totally about that where you'd actually have to ring the score the scoreboard. To get the score. Yeah, that's right. Um, so,
1: you know, I was doing that. And then I think his phone operator was sick one week. And I did the phones for the continue or the talking league team, right. they were called. Okay. Um, so, you know, that
0: was when they didn't have the coverage. They didn't
1: have the rights. They were just doing literally yeah. gibberish, Brandy, um, Chippy, Bozo, Blocker, and, and Hadley, to the point where they had a rotation six hours. And one of them was always off and they yeah. were sleeping on the couch in front of the call, or the NSU, as 2UE calls it. Um, so, yeah, I started doing the phone. So, in the end, uh, at 2UE, by the end of 2001, I was doing the sports show. I was producing or doing the phones for the Talking League team. I was enough embedded in the joint that I was, you know, you know, a lock for, for returning to a media career, essentially. Billy Steamshovel. Billy Steamshovel. <laughs> wow. Yes. Oh, how did that even come about? Peter Bosley, obviously. But, yeah, um, yeah there's still people that call me Billy Steamshovel now. Yeah. Um, Alastair Reynolds, the, the chief engineer at Tui at the time. If I ever run into him now, he calls me Billy, and people go, "Who the hell, <laughs> Billy Steamshovel?" was my nickname on the air for whatever reason, and uh, they'd hate motorsport. We did a poll one night about whether or not whether or not I should be allowed to talk about motorsport. Oh, on the okay, air. right, yeah. yeah. Um, it went well. I got to talk about it on the air. I even got a sponsor. I remember Justin Herald from Attitude Clothing was listening the night we, we did this big beat up about Billy Steam Shovel loving motorsport. Yes, rings up, says, "Mate, I'm gonna I'm gonna be your clothing sponsor." <laughs> And he comes in the next day with shirts, pants, everything. Mate, oh, I had oh, all the gear, mate. Oh, it was hilarious. It was my first good rot. Oh, see, that's the thing about which like, was a downhill
0: slope. <laughs> radio in those days, like you said, there was just so much fun and behind the scenes. And then you could, you know, through people like Peter Bosley and Andrew Moore, who would involve the off-air staff so that you totally. would feel like you were part of the team. And then. Weirdly enough, like listeners would ring in and ask how you were, or if yep. Andrew didn't refer to you on air, yep. they'd be worried that you were off sick or something.
1: Yeah. It was because you never knew who was listening at anyone's stage. It, 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 the best, I think, the best radio has that that sense, and that's just not speaking of someone who was always part of that off air team. But you know, when we, we used to, our first house around the corner here, Amanda and I, the postie knew who we were because right. he delivered these these letters to Amanda and Trevor Long, and Hadley would talk about us all the time. You know, just as part of his team, so yeah. he knew who we were. He loved he loved listening to Ray. So yeah, it was a much better time to to be involved on I don't hear that kind of sense too much in radio now, but maybe in the bigger teams like Kyle and Jackie O do it very well. Yeah, they have a real team. They even their, their team is on air all the time. Yeah. They've little mics everywhere and stuff. Um, but yeah, it was a good time. And, and you got to remember too, Amanda started working for. Um, Andrew Harwood, John Harker, Stan Zamanik in the nights because they all rotated in different times through the night period, and that's where I met Amanda. Yeah. I was doing the sports show; she was doing nights, so we kind of overlapped on the crossover. On the, on the yeah. crossover, and hello, there you go,
0: You've got a wife. a yep. couple of years down the track, three kids, and we're all good. Goodness, now let's talk about that. How's that changed you becoming a father? Because let's be honest, I was an asshole. Is
1: that what we're going to say? Well. I was- <laughs>
0: I'm not prepared to go down that path. But what I'd say is that the young Trevor Long that I first met was... And we've always got along really well. There's probably people there that didn't get along with you. You were abrasive and you you had attitude and you had all of these things. But the thing that I will notice... This is not a confessional. I'm aware of all these things. In in you now (laughs) is that there has been a significant change in your attitude and your just your willingness to, I guess, accept fools more easily, if that can be totally. sort of Look, good. there's
1: two things that change, and they happen around the same time, um, kids, family uh, and and work. When I left GB, I, w- I went to an organisation that was essentially a public service, yeah. <clears throat> SBS. You know, the shit that went down at GB was not acceptable <laughs> at SBS, and I realised that no, I didn't even need to realize that. I knew that from the get-go. Um, you just can't yell at people. Um, you just can't do the things we did. You have to expect a different process. And you know what? I hated it. Uh, the process is bureaucratic. It's wrong. People get paid out for things that they should never get paid out, like in terms of money. They, you know, the contracts are paid out because, but they should just be yelled at and sacked. You know, I still believe in a lot of the things that we did back then, but yep. I learnt very quickly. There's a there's a very different world. It's a changing world. And I was I was in an ecosystem that that. Supported a very different style. Um, I have no regrets, absolutely none. I no- where, did that, where
0: did that come from, though? That that cocky confidence, that that sort of like I said, that brashness. Like it never really worried me in a way because I always sort of saw that as you being you. That was your personality, mm. and, and that was the way you got things done. And you know, in that in that high energy environment, um, things are going to be said and stuff happens. Yeah, you know, um, and it's the part of that is like. You either get on board or
1: you miss the boat. That's so right, man. It's a, I think problematically I can't tell you where it comes from because I don't really remember or know. But I think the one thing about me is oh, I get over stuff real quick. It's the same, you know, have an argument with your wife. I'm like, I'm over it that minute. Yeah. Uh, she may hang on to that for a day. I, I never, I just, I'm over it. We're done. You know, if, if a live read was written wrong, I'd walk down to sails, I'd tear someone a new one and it would be fixed and we'd all move on. Now they may have cried in a corner for a day, and I think that's not great. Mm. But that's my problem. Was I never? I, I just moved on. It was just a small, quick issue. It was it was resolved. Um, I don't know where it came from, and it did, and to be very clear, it didn't come from Adley. No, because um, it, it was there before Adley. It was I knew you before and you. I was say, <laughs> and you can vouch for that, right? Uh, 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 it just it just came that I fitted in quite well in that team, which is probably why I did fit in quite well in that team. Um, but no, it was there all along. I, I, mate, I just it's, I'm, a, I'm a get it done move on kind of guy. I don't I don't cop fools. I don't we don't need that stuff. I'm still the same broadly, but I just mate, in life now, you think about your life now as a, as a parent with a different focus. And yeah. just getting older. You don't have time. I don't have time for a lot of people, a lot of socializing, a lot of stuff. So I and pettiness as I, I probably don't have the opportunity to even be that that person anymore, you know, just generally. So yeah, I mean it's I don't know where it comes from, mate. I just uh, I certainly didn't learn it from anyone. Um, so I don't, I don't know that we could blame anyone.
0: Talk to me about genetics. working with Ray Hadley. Anyone that's worked in the same office or building or company as, as Ray will tell you that ultimately, the way I look at it, and I copped a fair few sprays from Ray over my time, but if I'm honest about it, most of them were pretty much warranted. He was all about being a perfectionist, getting things right, being accurate. There are some things that are completely out of line that, Shouldn't be done, shouldn't yep. be said, um, but like I said, ultimately in the end of the day, he wanted the best product on air,
1: and he was always about what was on air. I absolutely loved working for Ray. Um, hardest decision ever was to walk into his office and tell him I was about to re- resign and leave, <clears throat> because he he was he was great to me. He was great to us, you know. But this is the thing people, people don't realise, and I'll talk about the broadly working for him, but people don't realise he, he's, he's not – it's like Stan money, He's not the same person you hear on air. And, yeah, there are some pretty awful stories, and, yes, they're true in many cases, but they're not reflective of the overall. So it's just one of those things you've got to decide to take it all or take some or take none. Um, he, he he was great to work for. He was a perfectionist. I copped more sprays than anyone. Um, just I tried to always have them face to face in the studio so that no one else heard them most of the time, as opposed to down the line but you know how 'd you handle that? I was always wrong, and if i wasn 't i 'd yell back so again, it was that I had no fear i didn 't fear the bloke i just and he gave you that
0: what 's the correct word he gave you the authority to um, give it to callers who uh,
1: weren't mate, up to standard or, or were not delivering you I don't know anything about to... that show now, but I've listened a bit and I don't like the calls at all. Mm. It feels like they're, they're few and far. I think they're turning too many people away. It feels like they're few and far between. It feels staged in some ways. I don't know what mm. they're doing, but I, I think he, he could go back to the way it was. I think it, it could be a better show. That's just an idiot's guide as a, as a listener, right? But he he did support what I, what I did off air. He, he knew that I was going to deliver him the right style of callers. He knew that when he wanted to stop a topic on a six-hour football show when you want to stop talking about Willie Mason after 45 minutes, he knew that I'd be able to stop that that flow of calls and they wouldn't get through. Yep. He knew that I wouldn't let people get, get through if they're going to talk about scrums. Um, that's, we just didn't do that. You know, I knew the rules. Um, and he had rules. That the simple thing was he played, he played a very good game of rules and he, he also liked to have control. And that's where our biggest, you know, um, loggerheads came really with the Olympics when he, he couldn't be involved every day in organising the Olympics, and I had to be, and he didn't know everything that was going on. So he was surprised to be sitting in Athens hearing that the football in his cans when he was calling a rowing race. And so after the rowing race he'd go off his nut that the rowing race wasn't live on air. And I'd say, mate, we're in the middle of a football game, I'll play the rowing race at half time. And I can tell you right now, I don't care what spray has been published or heard or there there's been nothing worse than what people like Bowen and I have copped. But that was because I didn't explain it to him enough. I didn't didn't explain what we were doing and I and I could have, should have and maybe would have, but I don't care. It didn't didn't change my world. We spoke to Anthony Clark earlier in this podcast
0: series about that phone call from yeah. Athens. Yeah. There was a few people mentioned in that. You were one of them. Mm. Trevor. Just, just mm. take me through that experience from your point of view.
1: That experience was exactly the same as a hundred other such experiences during that Olympics, let's be clear. Except there know, was just, this well, one was recorded. It, well, let's be clear, everything was recorded, and that's my fault. I made the decision that the, the core um, line from Athens would be recorded on Flashlogger continuously. So that... If he was sitting in front of a tube and saw something, he could just, he could just call it and we could, we could replay it. I'd never, need to, I'd never miss a thing because, you know, trust me, that would have been worse yeah. <laughs> if I'd have missed him call something and not be able to turn it around and put it on air. So that was, that was my decision and I stand by it. But in the end, someone in the building um, heard that, that, that spray, which to me was just another, another angry spray, <clears throat> about something that he was passionate about. He was passionate about we'd paid a lot of money for the broadcast rights, and that gave us the entitlement to play audio whenever the hell we wanted. And the news team decided not to that hour, despite the fact that he had said, this is going to happen, we'll lead with it. So two people made different decisions, and he was unhappy about it. He was very unhappy about it, and he wanted me to write an email to John Brennan, as the, as the tape clearly says. Mm. Um, I didn't give it any, any other thought other than probably to send an email to John Brennan about it. Um, and then two days later, it was in the paper. Now, the, I'll tell you the biggest thing I regret about that time, and I don't think we've ever spoken about it. Justin and I um, was Justin Kelly, Justin the news Kelly, director at the time. When when it was in the paper, it was in the Daily Telegraph in the confidential section, top right. I don't know why I remember that, but he knew it was in the paper, and we went off air. At, you know, five thirty in the morning, and I was still sitting in the core vetting area. Breakfast team was just kind of the highlights were on. Yeah, they yeah. were getting so it was just me. And he said, "Read me the article." So I read him the article, and look, let's be clear, I'm on his side. I work for him. I'm his guy. So I read in the article in the same tone that he wanted to hear the article and I read it as, as, as a Hadley guy. Yeah. No, no bones about it. I left the, left the office and my phone rang and it was Justin Kelly. Steam, I was listening to that. He was in the studio in Athens in another room listening because I was just talking down the line. Yeah. I wasn't talking on the phone. He heard everything I said. And you know what? That's not a that's not a great feeling, and I, I that's probably the one thing I regret is that I I didn't take myself out of the you know close you know circle of uh, support for Hadley yeah. and go actually this is a shit situation Ray and and we need to reflect on what, what happened so I didn't feel great and you know Justin and I didn't have a great relationship for a while after that obviously were you but, in a management position at that stage uh, 2004 um, yeah I think I was assistant program director.
0: And, yep. but you were also head of the Olympic coverage.
1: Yeah, I was I was the executive producer of the continuous call team, the Olympics, and assistant program director, which meant I rostered the panel operators, the phone operators, and made sure that there was always someone on shift.
0: Yep. So how did you patch it up with Justin eventually?
1: Gotta to, gotta to, got to say I don't remember. Time heals all. And and this may sound terrible, especially if Roz is listening, but I just I move on. I move on from things There's there's a couple of things that have happened in life that, that have, have never mended themselves and they're they're quite quite regretful things but I think Rosa was able to move on, I don't know, think entirely, but certainly in other jobs and things. And we just had to reconnect over time in other jobs. He's now a PR guy who I deal with regularly. And, you know, hopefully there's no, certainly hope, hope there's no bad blood over that. It was a long time ago and, and I don't feel that he was, he was well treated. I think he was very poorly treated, but, you know, I didn't have the experience. If that happened today, I've got a lot more experience now in dealing with very serious issues over seven and a half years at SBS of of, uh, having to, you know, uh, discipline people, work through union issues, and a whole bunch of things that have given me a really different training in life. That there's no doubt I would have handled that differently, but I didn't, couldn't, didn't have the skills, and was never, never had any training whatsoever. I've never been in all my years at 2GB, I was never given a single bit of training, a single bit of proper mentoring or. Annual reviews, like we didn't have that situation. You know, you just did your job and went to work, and shit went down, and you tried to react, and that's not great. Uh, When you don't have a HR department and and advisors like that, you don't you don't learn from those things. So, that was the one thing that Dirk Anthony taught me at SBS was you know coaching and conversations and learning to work through things like that. It's a very different world when you know how to do it.
0: What about the management side of things? We mentioned there that you sort of went into the assistant programming role. Um, John Brennan, radio legend, was around then. What did you learn from Breno?
1: So much about radio, just call radio. Look, to be honest, I didn't learn much about people management from Breno because I don't think he was a great people manager. I think he was a great radio manager and content manager. It's just weird to say because content manager was a is a new title, but yep. he knew how to make great radio and how to inspire. so when, people yeah, to when make did that happen? Radio. When did
0: program directors become content directors? It's all a bit of a wank, isn't it? Know, it's a complete wank. But
1: you know, that, I blame the digital world for that and probably Southern Cross. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but Breno, I think I, I learned a lot from Breno about just the general craft of a show. Um, the craft of you know, callers, greet them, gut them, goodbye them. Mm. Um, you know the idea of promotions and having structure and strategy around the the course of a year. A lot of things that, frankly, I think radio stations don't have today, especially talk, I don't think they have a plan. Um, they certainly don't have air checks. Breno didn't do air checks, but he certainly was able to send a note saying this was good, this was bad, and we've got to work on this thing. Yes. I learned that from him. It was great. Um, but, um, yeah, it was a great arc. Like, it was an awesome time. He he was an amazing person to think that he could he – could tap into what people were thinking without asking anyone. But he did like research. He wanted more research. He wanted to have, you know, data and research into what the public were thinking and stuff. But um, he was a man that knew how he could turn on a radio and know whether that was good or bad. And I'd like to think I've got that base skill somewhere in me. Absolutely still I can can turn on the radio and go, that's not good. Like I turned on the radio and listened to John Laws the other morning and went, wow, this is – someone needs to tell him to – not do that and do this instead, Or I was just, it was frustrating. And so Bruno taught me to be frustrated by radio as much as I like it. Well,
0: because obviously in that situation, you're dealing with presenters who have egos. How much of the job as a call screener slash producer is actually selling your ideas to the talent?
1: Not as much as like an EP, you know an executive producer's got to really get an idea up to we want to do this interview or this topic, but I think a call screener's job is to sell the caller. Like, this is a better caller than that one. Trust me, go to it. You know, you've got to know, you've got to have confidence about this caller being the right one to take off the back of that one, you know, flash him or whatever it is. So I think that, that skill, unfortunately, didn't really help me at all in, 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 in program management. You know, program management's hardest part is, is dealing with two personalities. Now, you would think Hadley and Jones would be the hardest. Absolutely not. I can tell you that dealing with Chris Smith and Philip Clark was hard because Smithy, would was on before Clark. Clark would have a thing lined up the day before. Smith would want to do it that day, and they'd bring them up, and they'd accept. And we've got a conflict there where two people want to do the same interview. How do you resolve that? And I, I never, I don't think I correctly learnt how to do that, or I correctly managed any of those situations. But it's a bloody hard thing to do. Is to is to basically sit down and um, and reconcile, or you know, mediate, mediate a, yeah. a situation. It's it's bloody hard because these people want someone in authority to say. This is how it's going to go down, people. Black or white. Smith, Smith, you're interviewing him, Clark, you're not. That's something I don't think I learnt from Breno, but I I look back and I go, that's what I should have done. I should have just gone, you know what? Clarkie, deal with it, mate. Smithy's going to have it. It's better for the station if we do it that way. Or Smithy, mate, Clarkie's going to do this interview better because of his background. Deal with it, do someone else you just got to be, mate, people just want an answer. It's the same. It sounds ridiculous, but it's the same as when someone rings up and says, mate, should I buy the LG 55-inch this or the HiSense 75-inch that? And I say to them, mate, do you want a massive TV? They go, yeah. I said, buy the big TV. Yeah. They just want someone to tell them.
0: Yeah. (laughs) How hard is that, though, from the fact that, okay, you're dealing with, like, experienced broadcasters, guys that are older than you, must be a difficult situation to put yourself in the fact that they probably, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, that they'd just see you as a junior person to them.
1: Totally. And I think that's that was always the challenge was to was to delineate what, what my job was and what Breno's job was. And it ended up being basically, you know, Breno dealt with Jones, I dealt with Hadley, and I pretty much dealt with the rest of the station apart from big moves, you know, when, yeah. we, were, when we were doing, you know, huge other station changes or whatever. But Breno was really there just to guide the station, and I was doing the day-to-day. Um, so it was just, mate, it just took time. It just takes time to build respect. I, I think I got that in the end. Absolutely. Um, um, so yeah, I think people like Smith and Clark, I, I worked really hard to get respect with, um, whether or not the, the decisions went their way or, or another. But you've got to just got to be supportive. Oh, I've said this to people at SBS over the years. You know, SBS is a tough radio station. You can't understand a bloody word they're saying. Seventy four <laughs> different languages, right? So how does a program manager who manages twenty one languages create a, a rapport with an executive producer? Do you know what you do? You listen to them. Doesn't matter that you can't understand it, but you hear certain things. You hear an indication of a jingle that went, went into an interview that went into this, and you say to them, "Did you interview like the prime minister? It sounded like mm. you like that. Sounded like slick." And you and you just if they hear that you listened to their work, they go, "That's amazing! Like that's awesome!" They just want to know that someone cares. That's right. They just yeah. want to know that someone was listening. And my, my best example of this is actually a panel operator, Abe. Um, who I'm, who's panelling me this weekend. It's hilarious. So we've we've gone full circle. I, I employed him at 2GB to be a casual panel operator, put him on mid-dawns. 2 a.m. in the morning, like 10-second gap out of the news, into the sport before we get back to program. So he gets back to program and I ring to the number that's um, the middle studio where he is, Abe, hey, Trevor. He's like, what, what? What? I went, what the hell just happened? He goes, mate. I said, well, listen, don't let it happen again. This is 2 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning. He's freaked out because the assistant program director was listening. listening. He didn't think he was listening. Yeah. But, and I probably never listened again. At 2 a.m. But he, he knew I was listening and he had that worry that I was listening all the time and it made him stay on guard for the rest of that shift, if not a few more shifts after that. And I, I think those kind of things make people realize that you're not just in it for the – for whatever you actually you have a, a vested interest in the program you you show an interest and people will give you that back in spades.
0: Oh, it's the overall product, right? And I just think having observed it for the last 20 years that a lot of that has been lost. Hmm. The feedback part of it, totally. the listening part of it, the quality control part of it.
1: Hmm.
0: And it's really sad.
1: It is um and I don't know how you ever get it back because it's really about cutbacks and there's not enough time in the day for people to do that stuff now. You know, I think the the challenge for radio stations today is trying to find a way to have that and the, the basic, you know, cost savings that are that are required. But in the end, people I tell you right now, it doesn't matter whether it's Ray Hadley, Alan Jones, or Warren Moore or Luke Grant or whoever the hell's on overnight or so whatever it is. It matters when you tell them you were listening and, and they, they respect it, and I think that's a great thing to have. But the other thing uh, that you talked about, management, I think it's really important that people who aren't in management understand management ain't easy. It's bloody hard. and you It's have not to about make... winning friends, right? No. Nope. Uh, let's be clear. In four years or five years as assistant program director, I don't think I made any friends at GB. That's That was not my job. In fact, I lost friends without question because people who, who were friends – I had to do deals with, and you know, we had to negotiate contracts, and it doesn't go as well when you're when you're two friends sitting on one side of the fence when you've actually got to achieve an outcome for the radio station. Management's not easy, never easy. Um, it's sometimes uh, quite joyful because you get to do you get to decide something that happens and it goes really well. Yeah, but also there's a bunch of stuff that happens behind the scenes that is just utterly shit, and you drive home wanting to listen to a song that's going to just take your mind away from it, or, or you just drive in tears, whatever. But it's not easy and that's a tough thing for people who aren't and have no people who have no aspiration aspiration to management yep. really can't appreciate how much how difficult it is to make tough decisions. It's bloody hard.
0: Going along then to SBS after that, was that a difficult decision for you to make? Because you were Hadley's guy Monday to Friday. You're also Hadley's guy Saturday, Sunday. Seven days a week for an entire football season for what, five, six years?
1: Eight years, something like that, yeah.
0: That's an exhausting period to Loved it. work on that and invest your energy in that. So was it a point where you just went, I actually need something else to challenge me or how you did know it Ralph, come about?
1: Really simple. Angela Clark was the CEO at the time, visionary woman. And I say that right now in hindsight, I didn't really see it at the time. The stuff that she was doing back then, podcast stuff that we were doing back then is literally 10 years ahead of its time. Um, Live news, whatever, all the different stuff that she was doing back then was visionary, but we didn't really get on. We, 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 were, we got on great as a manager and kind of CEO, but, you know, I, it was when I started doing I started doing the radio show. So uh, there was a point there where the guy doing the tech with Brian Wilshire wasn't very good. And I said, Brian, he's got to go. He said, what am I going to do? I said, mate, I'll come in and do 10 minutes of buddy tech news for you. No drama. I come up and he goes, well, here for the next hour, it was Trevor Long taking your calls. And I went, what? Loved it. So I ended up being on air and doing the thing, and I wasn't trying to do anything other than just do the show. And it was at 10 o'clock at night on a Thursday. I, I made a little website so that I could put stories up. So what changed? Because we said before, there was no interest from you in being on air, and then that, all of a sudden- The radio, the, the microphone went on, and I loved it. That hour- Because you could do it. Like
0: I remember you going to the Grand Prix and doing reports like you were an old news pro. Like, yeah, right. You, you could do it. It's just that you didn't believe you could do it or you had no interest in doing yeah. it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's, that's – it was simply I had no interest in doing it. It's only now that I go, you know what, I should actually – I think I could actually do something here. I could actually have a bit of a go at this. But that was – it was literally Brian Wilson turning on the mic and going, you're on for the next hour and then enjoying talking to people. It was great fun. I'm all, I've always been that guy that the buddy grandmas love because he's there to help or whatever. And So you're talking to a 50-plus audience who love hearing someone that helps them and I just loved it. I loved – being involved and I created this little thing and it was Brian's show he chipped for brains we'd mm. been on for 20 years and I just kept doing it um, and I loved it it was great fun and, and what what changed in terms of we'll get back to Angela and then then move back to the on- air stuff but you know Angela didn't Angela saw, thought I was creating a brand for myself I didn't really know I was but I probably was at the time right I was just creating I just posted stuff online that was that she wanted on the 2gb.com and it was just weird and I just didn't feel overly supported plus let's be completely honest um john brennan retired and they put peter brennan in as the program director now that was a pretty big slap in the face kick in the guts massive kick in the guts and I, angela personally came down and said to me listen here's what's going to happen today i just want you to know that we we need to work out what's next for you because i don't want to lose you they offered me she offered me general manager all these things and i just went i'll be executive producer of sport and special events that's the second the first title i made up nice. in my career, and it was great because i just did sport and special events um and you know, in hindsight now, and reading Breno's book and talking to Breno, we've talked about it since he didn't see me as a people person. I wasn't a people person, and Alan didn't see me as a people person either. So Alan and Breno didn't didn't think I was That's the right person big for the votes job. Going Pretty big you. votes against you, yeah. Um, it says no. Angela Angela may have wanted me to have the job, but no way would would she be able to go against Alan and Breno. So it, it didn't happen, and you know, it was kicking the guts. And after a while, it was just like I'm literally just coasting away here. And an opportunity came up at SBS, and I went, you know what? I just need to do something different. I could earn more money. And I just, yeah, it was just a change, a big radical change that, you know, was, was good good for me. And then what
0: part of the management process did you learn at SBS? It was just, Every like part. you said, it was <laughs> just a complete and utter change in mentality, I Correct. guess. So you've
1: got to remember, I came from being a program manager, someone who was definitely and heavily involved in content, to having nothing to do with content. I managed the budget for SBS Radio. I was the mm. business manager. So I was managing admin and people, and I had nothing to do with what went to where. I was involved in the room when they were making big decisions, but I just chimed in as a little bit here and there. But broadly, I, I became a manager. I became someone who knew how to manage people and learn a bit of bureaucracy and a bit of about meetings and all this kind of stuff. It was just, mate, stuff I'd never seen before. We never had executive meetings at at 2GB. I think they tried to have them for a while, but they never really happened. You know, this was a collaborative approach to how things worked, and we'd work with other people in the building to do – it was – mate, it was was a complete culture shock, literally and figuratively. Um, And, yeah, I learned everything from how to manage people, how to manage through crisis, how to, you know, coach people, you know, young people who – don't need to be sacked. They need to be coached. You know, yeah. to say, what can I, how can I help you? What are you trying to achieve? And that was Dirk saying to me, what do you want to do in five years? So I'd sit down with people and say, so where do you want to be in five years and how can I help you get there? And they'd say, oh, maybe I want to move up. I said, no, 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 not here. Where do you want to work next? It doesn't yeah. have to be SBS. I'm here to help you grow your career so that you get that next job. And let's be clear, when you're offered that next job, I want you to tell me so that we can offer you a better one or let you go to onto a greener pastures. That's not a conversation we ever had at 2GB. No. Are you kidding me? It was a different environment altogether, wasn't it? So that, that people management, so it is, If it's honestly, if anyone is listening to this that worked with me in 2002 through to 2007, and seven eight, would be thinking, are you kidding? <laughs> really? People manager? Genuinely, I accept that I was not a people manager and I... Give you a gold platter guarantee that right now, if I was to get references from people at SBS, uh, people management would be the number one thing. My, but my oh, but last like 12, again, twelve to eighteen months oh, there was literally just managing people. Comes with you getting things. getting older, yeah, learning,
0: experience, mm. flying hours in different areas, and it's, it's also reason,
1: I keep going back, kids. kids. Yeah, yeah, you've got to have a different mentality when it comes to kids, and you realise how influential you can be you realise how much of an influence you are on these little people who are doing what – they say what you say and do what you do. And you realise that's exactly how management should be. You should say what you expect people to say and you should do how how people expect you to do. And the interesting thing about that is if I'd stayed at GB – oh, crystal ball, this craziness – but if I'd stayed at GB, Christ, I could be managing director now. Who knows? Whatever. Mm. But i tell you right now, I wouldn't have any of those skills and I'd be really shit managing director. So – it was the best thing to do because it gave me a heap of skills, but it also gave me a realisation that I love radio and I never not wanna I never want to not be involved in radio. Yeah, like that's why I'm still doing a show, right? But I don't know that I ever want to be involved in the management of radio again unless I could have that kind of influence that I had at SBS in you know, a in a commercial radio world. Talk to me about podcasting. It's something that obviously I've taken up given mm. the fact that this is a podcast
0: and I've taken it elsewhere and you're the guy that I come to for advice. But it's evolved, hasn't it? Oh, Certainly yeah. in the last sort of 12, 18 months where the technology is now available on pretty much everyone's phone. You've got the Bluetooth in the car. Yeah. Um, there's just been this, this boom where it's been around for 10 years. Radio stations were using it as a as a platform to time shift their programs. Yeah. So if they, Joe Bloggs missed it, he could pick it up on the podcast. But... To me, someone that's not overly technical but has an idea about technology, it was just too much of an effort to go to your PC um, mm. and download it and, and then put it on your iPod and away yeah, you went. Exactly. And But now it it's just this underground current. Of, uh, and I'll be honest, I'm 12 months into actually listening and I didn't realise how out there? big it is mm. out there and, and all of that. So can you take us through what you believe makes a good podcast and also what enjoyment you get out of it because you've been doing it for quite some time. I started,
1: last night was episode 324 of Your Tech Life. Your Tech Life started as the Thursday night radio show I was doing when I went back to, while I was at SBS, I went back to GB and started doing a one hour radio show called Your Tech Life and I'd take it off every night and I'd put it on the podcast. And then when, when I left 2GB, I went, well, still – so I just started a little in – my, in my garage, I just started talking for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever, and then I worked out how to do calls. And so I just turned the same radio show into a podcast. And that, to me, is the bottom line element. We've talked about it a million times. It's got to be good enough to be on the radio. If it's not good enough to be on the radio, why do you think you're putting it through people's ear holes? I mean, it's just ridiculous. So you've got to put some effort into it. You've got to have basic structure basic production values, and, you know, basic rundown. You've got to be able to bring people through a, So radio,
0: radio people have a distinct advantage from the radio? Radio
1: people absolutely have an advantage. You know, there's some conversational podcasts out there that are good to listen to, and that's because they are made to just be conversations like this. But anyone that's doing anything that's meant to be topical or structured, you've got to have radio elements. You've got to have, you know, the odd stings or jingles. You've got to have an intro. You've got to have things that make it sound like something that people are getting. And the number one thing you've got to have is consistency. You've got to deliver a product the same time every week if you're doing a weekly format you know, i get emails from people on a you know wednesday if i haven't put a show up on Thursday, on tuesday i went to the trouble last night of telling people that next week i'll probably do a show on monday because i'm going to go away with the kids on tuesday so you've got to let people know where you're at and you've got to create that direct affinity with an audience through a radio program that just happens to be pre-recorded i mean that's your tech life is a talkback podcast what the hell yeah. how does that happen it's just pre-recorded, right? It's not. It's not anything new. You could pre-record a whole radio show if you wanted to with talkback. As long as you had emails from people, you could call. Correct. That's all I'm doing. Um, Two blokes talking tech is is broadly the same, but it would never get. It would never fly as a radio show in its current format. We'd need to just tone things back. We'd have a little bit more structure around time, but it's broadly still loosely based on on a radio show. So I think the number one thing is just creating a product that people can engage with. That is still entertaining because most of the podcasts I download are boring. And if it's boring, why would I listen to it? Why am I putting that in my cast area?
0: Is that people thinking that they can do it and don't have the ability to do it or don't have that basic concept of structure like you
1: said? It's 100% people that think they can do it and can't. And they don't have anyone telling them honestly that they can't. And that's the problem with not having a content manager, program manager, is you need someone that says... It's like the, the problem of radio stars. Some people... Will never get past mid-dawn. Because they're bloody awesome at mid-dawns. They know how to work that audience. They know how to bring that that story through a full hour and you know get people going. Some people are just not going to make it to breakfast. Some people have never been told that, and that's sad. You know, people are still trying to get to breakfast radio when they're never going to get there. They've they've missed that generation. Sometimes a podcaster needs to be told the same thing. Oh, there's a couple of people that email me when I make mistakes or technically it's not right. I've got a blip in the audio or something, and I'm like, dude, I'm going to work out what's wrong with that. I'm going to get onto it because that doesn't make me feel great at all. No, but my listeners will tell me that. I've got that much of a relationship with the core of them that they'll tell me when something goes wrong or they think I'm being lazy because I only did a half hour show instead of an hour or whatever it is. Um. You've got to to accept that. And a lot of people don't have anyone telling them that. And that's the problem with podcasting. It's so small. The audience numbers might be 10 or 20 people a week, or it could be 10,000. But when you've got a small audience, you're unlikely to be getting that honest feedback, which is also going to stilt your growth. You're not going to get that that audience to grow if it's not great content.
0: Well, the barrier to entry has become a whole lot easier now, right? Like, I mean, we're doing this on equipment that Costs about three, four hundred bucks.
1: Despite the fact that we're sitting in my palatial studio. studio. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But it's
0: that as well. It's just like,
1: well, you know. And you've spent more than many. Yeah, exactly. To be honest, you know, most people wouldn't go to that trouble. But you, we talked about it early on. You've got to try for quality and you've got to at least make a small investment, which demonstrates that you're trying to create quality. And I think the audience responds to that. Um, So yeah, the barrier to entry is. Zero. You don't even need a kit. You could just record on your computer through the computer mic and upload. You know, the platforms are there. But obviously you're not gonna engage and you're not gonna get a huge audience out of that. And plus there's the there's the you know, um, tentacles of, of people's social reach and stuff that is, is how an audience has grown and built.
0: We touched on it earlier. We talked about how it all began for you in terms of setting out by yourself. How do you see the future going for you? What is it that you want to achieve in this period of your life where you have ditched the full-time job you're working for Trevor Long you're doing what you want to do
1: oh look I'm working more hours now than I was before but you've got that flexibility I took the kids to school this morning and it's yep. just bloody awesome but look I, I it's funny I still don't know where how it's going to come about I'm still forming that because you, you had I had an idea six months ago but it's not quite the same as it is now it's just amazing how the phone rings and it's a different idea so Corporate speaking has become a much bigger part of it because there's good money there for a start, but also, you know, I've got, I can speak, right? I'm not, it sounds egotistical, but sorry, in my game, I've got to have an ego. So I can speak, I can engage an audience, and I've got this cool knowledge about cool tech that a lot of people love to hear about. So, it's really cool that I can stand in front of a corporate crowd at a closed staff meeting and talk about a bit of technology that I—it's just second nature to me. But people haven't seen. They go, "Wow!" So that's awesome. That's a really cool thing. Um, you know, working in, in behind the scenes with brands and PRs to advise them on how they can get better media traction is a is an easy thing, and and, and I like the idea of making money out of that. And then I guess overall, but those that, so that's the way I want to make money. But I absolutely do want to build a, uh, continue to build that profile because I've realized, and I realized a few years ago, you asked me whether it was intentional. It wasn't intentional to build a profile, but I did realize, I don't know, 18, 24 months ago that I needed to.
0: And it has mm. been building up slowly in the background you know, while you're doing your full-time job. People, and it's just like, was there a moment in time where you just sat there and just think, okay, I've got this brand. I'm the tech guy. Can I go and do this now?
1: Yeah, no, because I never really set out – as I said, I can't make money out of that. <laughs> I literally – in public speaking, I can, but in terms of media, I can't. So, But it, yeah. feeds, it feeds the other thing, right? They, they do. They, they basically feed themselves, and it's worked out well that way. But the I did make a decision that Trevor Long was the brand, not EFTM or any of my other properties because – Like uh, I did a – I was at Channel 9 yesterday and and I was doing two things and I ended up doing a third with, with Mike Dalton from news and he was standing out in front of a petrol station doing a grab for news and he said, what should I put on the super? You know, where are you from? And I went, just write technology expert. It's fine. I'm not here to promote EFTM because, mate, the number of people that read that, click that, hear that, it's insignificant. Yeah. But the more they hear Trevor Long, the more they see Trevor Long, the more they associate me with technology, the better it is for me overall as a brand. So that's absolutely the strategy. And I work that behind the scenes. Every month I put out uh, an email to all the PR companies, about 400-odd people that I have in my database, telling them how I went last month, how many people viewed my website, how many people downloaded my podcast, how many people saw me on television, and how much media value that has. Because I need those people to understand that I'm the one that can bring them value, right? So that is absolutely a massive it's not push bad, not for Not bad, my
0: going for someone that's not a people person. Mate. <laughs> you seem to be able to promote pretty well,
1: mate. The biggest challenge I have is is doing more one on one, just sitting with people. I had lunch with people yesterday, and I'm like, you know, it's not the kind of thing I used to do. You're I, not a lunch guy. I'm not a lunch guy. I'm not a coffee guy. I don't drink no. coffee. I'm happy to have a chat about something, but I'm I am sitting there going. What's the purpose of this? So the, one of the things Dirk taught me about meetings was in a corporate environment, and everyone should take this on board, when you get a meeting invitation, if it doesn't have a purpose or an agenda, just say no. What is the purpose of this meeting? Why do you want me at it? And what are we going to achieve in that meeting? If you're not going to tell me that, no way. That's why and I you, always
0: we, I come to our meetings with notes. But, the,
1: but, but <laughs> Ralph, it's a really important thing. You said to me, when can we catch up? We need, we need a few hours. I, I need to pick your brain about the podcast stuff. I've got a few things I want to run through. That was the purpose of this meeting. Was to have that conversation. Whereas I got a coffee this afternoon with a bike. I'm telling you right now, it's not going to happen. <laughs>
0: not looking forward to it because it's got no purpose
1: it's, it's not going to happen because a time's running out b there is no direct purpose i can have that conversation with him at any time and i probably am better served putting that time into another article online or something like that so yeah I, i'm not a great people person in i'm we did you know charts and all that kind of crap as a staff and i'm in the top two percent of introverts on the planet when you do the whole ranking system thing and yet yeah, it doesn't show when you're on tv and the radio but I'd much prefer just be sitting here in my office, just typing away, reading away, writing away.
0: Yeah, but you become more of an approachable guy as years have gone on to share your expertise in different areas. So,
1: I, you know, I'm, I will always have time for people trying to do better. It's just so awesome. I there's a girl at SBS we employed to to work in an admin and uh, probation period wasn't going great. Not going good. Tears, tissues in every friggin' meeting. Um, but and I did not want to lose hope in her, and I sat down with her. What do you want to achieve? What are we trying to do here? And we ended up getting to the point at the end of probation where we didn't let her go. We kept her on, and it was a great feeling to think that that by having conversations every week for three months, she turned it turned it around, created a bit of you know a bit of work for her, and knew where she wanted to go. And it was it made it's a great feeling. And it's the same with whether it's buddy podcasting or I have young people say to me, how do I get into this thing that you do? And I go, well, clearly I don't want you to get into my game. But, you know, hopefully my son beats you to the punch to take my job in, in 15 years from now. But, you know, it's actually not hard. And here's the things you can do to, to get into it. It's fun. I've got no dramas because there was a point where they were, oh, I'm not going to help anyone, oh, it's, you know, protecting yourself. But in the end, mm-hmm. I go now, again, it's the ego. It says... I am better than anyone else at what I do, so it doesn't matter if there's 15 other people trying to do it. And you must be chuffed that people come to you and ask for advice. like Totally. You know, it's awesome. It's great to think that people not aspire to be you, or but they but they do like something that you do and want to know how you do it. Um, and and I've got no drama supporting that. And it's the same in radio. I, I love there's been some good uh, like phone operators coming for work experience and stuff at TUE I've seen over the years, and you can pick them. Panel operators too. You can pick the ones that are bloody good. And and they're not there just for the free ride or the, no. you know, shift. And those are the people that I still engage with now. They're the people I'll refer to others if there's jobs going and stuff, because you know like you're not going to put your name behind someone who's crap. Right? I do not want my name associated with anyone who turned out to be a dud. Unless I, I misjudged them and I was wrong. But most of the time, pretty good judge of character and pretty good judge of work ethic too. Because work ethic to me is the most important thing anyone can have, isn't it? Let's wrap
0: it up in a sec, but advice for younger people looking to make that first step. You mentioned getting your foot in the door as mm. the most vital component. I mean, we all sort of did it and we did it for free because we, we loved it. The generation under us, or two generations, I'm not sure we were in Gen Y or Gen Z I've or lost them, track or, Which one are or Whatever. But there's perception out there that they just don't want to do it. Mm. But that's the way in media it's always been done and it's the way... You will progress. Is it's, that is that is
1: that the way you think about it? Still, it's changed. It has changed. It's not as easy as it was just to get your foot in the door for a start. It's definitely harder because of just things like law. You know, you can't just be a pleb standing around. There has to be some sort of arrangement. So that's a pain in the ass. There's no doubt though. If you if you look keen, work hard, and demonstrate your ability, you will find work. Now that may not mean going in and doing stuff for free. It may mean um, writing a blog for the next 12 months that just continuously pumps out your opinion on things and something and who the hell knows who's going to see that read that or come across that it might mean doing a podcast that shows that you can actually talk underwater and, and conduct yourself well and you it's might a body come of work right other, that, that's right you've got to create a body of work there's no way i could have picked up the radio work that i've picked up if i didn't have some experience in creating radio product. Now whether it's through podcast or whatever, you've just got to be you've got to be creating content. So don't sit on your ass waiting for someone to offer you a job. Create content. That's the beautiful thing about today is and it's frustrating as all hell for young people because if I if today I was my 20-year-old self clearly life would be different because so much opportunity and I wouldn't have a mortgage and kids and all those things. Now, right now the hardest thing I could do is leave a, leave a full time job I've got a big house and kids to pay for it. it's bloody hard, it's a massive risk but I see 22 year olds going oh, should I, oh, mate, just leave, do it, go and do your thing now's your chance to live under your mum's roof or bloody car- share with someone at a rent rental flat and pay bugger all rent and just work hard just just blog every day I mean I'm sitting here. If, um, it's terrible relationship, wise, but if I've if there's a time of the day, I'd prefer to be sitting here writing a cellular article for EFTM, 10 which may or may not get great traction online, than sitting and watching TV. You know, it's just the way I am. I think people have got to be like that. You've got to be prepared to make content, create a body of work, and you have to network. You have to find a way to create some network of people at the very low end. You're not going to meet Ray Hadley tomorrow. No. But you know what? Ray Hadley has three or four people working for him. They have friends. You're not gonna. It's not gonna be hard to find a way to either get one week of, of time in there, one day of time in there, and maybe then impress them with something. Maybe then you know demonstrate that you could do the phones on an overnight. You know, it's you've just got to try. Bloody hell!
0: Who would have thought meeting 20, uh, Trevor Long twenty years ago would result in <laughs> me interviewing Trevor Long? <laughs> On a podcast. Imagine if, like, 20 years ago, we, uh, we, we spoke to our 20-year-old selves, just saying, mate, I'm going to interview on my, uh, you on my podcast in 20 years' time.
1: <laughs> We'd say, Ralph, what's a podcast? Go and take your meds, you crazy mofo. <laughs> I mean, seriously. But it is, it, isn't it amazing how much the world has changed in that time? It's terribly an old, old person thing to say, but Christ, it is so different now. It really is. Isn't it. But it's, it's awesome. and I, I think there's more opportunities now than there was back then. Just not in radio, you know. So yep. in radio, yes, there's probably less opportunities. But in media, because the media is everything. This is media. Yep. We are on media now. This is a form of media. So is blogging. So is every single thing, you know. If if BuzzFeed can be a news website, then anyone can create content. Just create content and do it consistently and prove who you are and what you believe in and what you know. Easy. Trip along. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Ralph
0: technology expert, Trevor Long. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Trevor, please send him a tweet. He's at Trevor Long. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Also, check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, please leave a rating or review. That way, more people will learn about the show. Just a quick shout-out to Judge Roy, Sid Sadler, Darren Kotrupi and Ozzy Scott for leaving reviews. Much appreciated. And if you leave a review, I'll give you a shout out as well. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast.
1: Media Mates Podcast.